Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we'll be reading Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14, and then through J.C. Rao's expository thoughts on Matthew. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone tied around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin! For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes! And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. See, that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we are taught in these verses is the necessity of conversion and of conversion manifested by childlike humility. The disciples came to our Lord with the question, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They spoke as men half-enlightened and full of carnal expectations. They received an answer well calculated to awaken them from their daydream, an answer containing a truth which lies at the very foundation of Christianity. Unless you turn and become like little children, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Let these words sink down deeply into our hearts. Without conversion, there is no salvation. We all need an entire change of nature. Of ourselves, we have neither faith, nor fear, nor love towards God. We must be born again. Of ourselves, we are utterly unfit for dwelling in God's presence. Heaven would be no heaven to us if we were not converted. It is true of all ranks, classes, and orders of mankind. All are born in sin and children of wrath, and all, without exception, need to be born again and made new creatures. A new heart must be given to us 
and a new spirit put within us. Old things must pass away, and all things must become new. It is a good thing to be baptized into the Christian church and use Christian means of grace. But after all, are we converted? Would we know whether we are really converted? Would we know the test by which we must try ourselves? The surest mark of true conversion is humility. If we have really received the Holy Spirit, we shall show it by a meek and childlike spirit. Like children, we shall think humbly of our own strength and wisdom and be very dependent on our Father in heaven. Like children, we shall not seek great things in this world and having food and clothing and a Father's love, we shall be content. Truly, this is a heart-searching test. It exposes the unsoundness of many so-called conversions. It is easy to be a convert from one party to another party, from one sect to another sect, from one set of opinions to another set of opinions. Such conversions save no one's soul. What we all want is a conversion from pride to humility, from high thoughts of ourselves to lowly thoughts of ourselves, from self-conceit to self-abasement, from the mind of the Pharisee to the mind of the tax collector. A conversion of this kind we must experience if we hope to be saved. These are the conversions that are wrought by the Holy Spirit. The next thing that we are taught in these verses is the great sin of putting stumbling blocks in the way of believers. The words of our Lord Jesus on this subject are particularly solemn. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Woe to the one by whom the temptations come. We put offenses or stumbling blocks in the way of men's souls whenever we do anything to keep them back from Christ or to turn them out of the way of salvation or to disgust them with true religion. We may do it directly by persecuting, ridiculing, opposing, or dissuading them from deciding service to Christ. We may do it indirectly by living a life inconsistent with our religious profession and by making Christianity loathsome and distasteful by our own conduct. Whenever we do anything of the kind, it is clear from our Lord's words that we commit a great sin. There is something very fearful in the doctrine here laid down. It ought to stir up within us great searchings of heart. It is not enough that we wish to do good in this world. Are we quite sure that we are not doing harm? We may not openly persecute Christ's servants, but are there none that we are injuring by our ways and our example? It is dreadful to think of the amount of harm that can be done by one inconsistent professor of religion. He gives a handle to the infidel. He supplies the worldly man with an excuse for remaining undecided. He checks the inquirer after salvation. He discourages the saints. He is, in short, a living sermon on behalf of the devil. The last day alone will reveal the wholesale ruin of souls that offenses have occasioned in the church of Christ. 
One of Nathan's charges against David was, You have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. 2 Samuel 12 verse 14 The next thing that we are taught in these verses is the reality of future punishment after death. Two strong expressions are used by our Lord on this point. He speaks of being cast into everlasting fire. He speaks of being cast into hellfire. The meaning of these words is clear and unmistakable. There is a place of unspeakable misery in the world to come to which all who die impenitent and unbelieving must ultimately be consigned. There is revealed in Scripture a fiery indignation, which sooner or later will devour all of God's adversaries. Hebrews 10.27 The same sure word which holds out a heaven to all who repent and are converted declares plainly that there will be a hell for all the ungodly. Let no man deceive us with vain words upon this dreadful subject. Men have arisen in these latter days who profess to deny the eternity of future punishment and repeat the devil's old argument that we shall not surely die. Genesis 3 verse 4. Let none of their reasonings move us, however plausible they may sound. Let us stand fast in the old paths. The God of love and mercy is also a God of justice. He will surely avenge. The flood in Noah's day and the burning of Sodom were meant to show us what he will one day do. No lips have ever spoken so clearly about hell as those of Christ himself. Hardened sinners will find out, to their cost, that there is such a thing as the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6, verse 17. The last thing we are taught in these verses is the value that God sets on the least and lowest of believers. It is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. These words are meant for the encouragement of all true Christians and not for little children only. The connection in which they are found with the parable of the hundred sheep and the one that they went astray seems to place this beyond doubt. They are meant to show us that the Lord Jesus is a shepherd who cares tenderly for every soul committed to his charge. The youngest, the weakest, the sickliest of his flock is as dear to him as the strongest. They shall never perish. None shall ever pluck them out of his hand. He will lead them gently through the wilderness of this world. He will not overdrive them with a single day, lest any die. Genesis 33, verse 13. He will carry them through every difficulty. He will defend them against every enemy. The saying which our Lord spoke shall be literally fulfilled. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost none. John 18, verse 9. With such a Savior, who need fear beginning to be a thorough Christian. With such a shepherd, who, having once begun, need fear being cast away. That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory.